This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. Seeing is, of course, very much a matter of verbalization. Unless I call my attention to what passes before my eyes, I, sim- I simply won't see it. It is, as Ruskin says, not merely unnoticed, but in the full, clear sense of the word, unseen. If Tinker Mountain erupted, I'd be likely to notice. But if I want to notice the lesser cataclysms of valley life, I have to maintain in my head a running description of the present. It's not that I'm, not, it's not that I'm observant, It's just that I talk too much. Otherwise, especially in a strange place, I'll never know what's happening. Like a blind man at the ball game, I need a radio. When I see this way, I analyze and pry. I hurl over logs and roll away stones. I study the bank a square foot at a time, probing and tilting my head. Some days when a mist covers the mountains, when the muskrats won't show and the microscope's mirror shatters, I want to climb up the blank blue dome as someone would storm the inside of a circus tent, wildly, dangling, and with a steel knife, claw a rent in the top, peep, and if I must, fall. This is from uh, Pilgrim at Tinker's uh, (laughs) Tinker's Creek, Annie Dillard. And I've been uh, rereading this book, and I was thinking just about the pleasure of rereading, the pleasure of rediscovering something. Um, Because sometimes, you know, the first time you're too um, preoccupied or too dazzled by the language or the newness, but, and so to, to, to actually take it all in, but when you're rereading and you're revisiting, the same landscape, you're reflected back to yourself. And you can see, oh, I've, I've grown, or not, and see what you couldn't see before. And I, I chose this passage, which is part of a, a, larger, a longer chapter on seeing, <clears throat> because I thought it would work well with uh, this um, long weekend's retreat, Beginner's Eye, and photography, which hopefully made it very poignant for all of you who are participating in it, the question of what is seeing and who is the one who is seeing. <clears throat> so I've been reading Annie Dillard, among other things, and I've been studying the 10 paramitas, um, 10 as they're laid out in the Theravada Buddhism in the Pali Canon, whose uh, anchor, I think, is clear seeing, wisdom, prajna, paramita, which is seeing, deeply realizing the true nature of things. And I'd like to suggest that virtue, or sila, paramita, which uh, traditionally is understood as the, as the cultivation of, of moral conduct through the practice of the precepts, I'd like to suggest that it, too, is predicated on a total, wholehearted, perfect kind of seeing. 
a seeing of the whole being, and whether it's a person, an object, a landscape, and let us, you know, for the sake of closeness, call them all beings, and that virtue is having full regard, and full respect for a being, whether it's this being, other beings, because they are not different, in fact. And I've always thought that that's what we all want fundamentally, is to be seen, to be fully seen and regarded and therefore respected in our basic humanity. And that so much of that process of seeing and being seen is what makes us whole, because we're such relational beings. Maybe if there's a true um, recluse, maybe they don't care. But most of us, most of us do. So I think it is true of a teacher who said that the opposite of love is not hate, but disregard. And I told recently the story of uh, my first interview, my, face, my first face-to-face teaching, which was not with Daira Roshi, but with uh, Shugen Sensei, who at the time was not Sensei. And I have a very clear mental image of that interview. It happened in the Buddha Hall. And so he was wearing his black robes. And I remember going in, and, and so I, I hadn't even met Daido at the time. And I remember going in and mumbling something about uh, being really drawn to this life. This was my first weekend here. But I mumbled something about re- being really drawn to this life and maybe being a monk or something. And I have no recollection whatsoever of what he said, but it's irrelevant. Because all I saw were his eyes on me that gaze that he has. And I had never felt so completely seen in my entire life. And so 20 years later, I still feel that from him. And I still remember very clearly that first time. And the opposite, you know, what a visceral terror. And I don't uh, exaggerate when I, when I feel that, a, a terror of those times when I did not feel seen, you know, those times in my life where it, did, it seemed like it didn't matter what I did. It was like I wasn't there, like I didn't exist. And a, what a, uh, a kind of, you know, you know, even as I say it, I'm feeling that in my body. Uh, uh, it's a kind of annihilation, uh, an extinction, and how different the texture is of that experience from emptiness, you know, from those, those moments when you see, when I see that I'm not who or what I think I am, what I've thought for so long I am. And the overwhelming relief of that, the lightness of that. Oh, so I don't have to keep making me. This, on the other hand, is a, this disregard is a, a negation of being. And therefore, it's, you know, it's almost violent. And I've done it. I've done it myself to somebody else. And in that moment, it was violent. Because it not only disregards the person, it, it disregards their inherent awakened nature, their Buddha nature. And that moment of um, complete 
uh, self-regard, of self-preoccupation, that moment of not seeing the other is a, a, a negation of their being. <clears throat> and I was thinking what a compelling paradox it is that we need to be completely regarded, that, that this is so fundamental to our existence at the same time that we must see that the self is empty. But that's why I like the, the language of Tibetan Buddhism because empty is, uh, they say, you know, so all the, the nature of all things is empty of, of self-nature, of independent existence, but it's luminous, it's bright, and it's all-pervading, and it's luminous. So it's not vacant. There's, there's no lack, there's nothing missing. It's impossible for anything to be missing. And given that the self is empty and luminous in nature, then who practices the paramitas? Who observes the precepts? Who practices virtue? Who is the one seeing? And I think it's in the blood, uh, Bloodstream Sermon that Bodhidharma says that Buddhas don't keep precepts, and they don't break precepts, and they don't do good, and they don't do evil. But he can say that because he knows exactly what he means when he says it, which is exactly not what most of us mean when we say it. So, you know, even after years of practice, it's, we have to be careful about what we mean. Is there even a trace in our minds of, oh, you know, the self is empty, that's nice. And we go about our lives doing exactly what we've always done. And that is what most of us do, actually. You know? And on the cushion, at a certain point, it's not hard. At a certain point, it's not that difficult to see that the self is empty. And it feels good. That bright, luminous nature, to be in the midst of it, feels good. But what about when you get off the cushion and you're asked to do a job that you don't want to do? Where is that selflessness then? We want selflessness, but not yet. Not like that. Like, as, um, like St. Augustine's prayer. You know, Lord, give me chastity and continence, but not yet. <laughs> <laughs> if these paramitas are anchored by wisdom, if they're anchored in selflessness, they can't be just tailored to my wishes. This isn't Buddhism, Suisse style. But how do we know? know, If we see only what we see, how do we know what we're basing our actions on? I've always thought that we do know. That if we're paying attention, we, we do know. That in the midst of planning that noble gesture that's going to help your neighbor, for example. In the midst of that, to stop and really wonder, really ask yourself, who is this really benefiting, ultimately? And that if we're watching closely, and that if we're listening, and that we can be honest with ourselves, we know. We know who this is benefiting. And our actions are always uh, based on what we see and what we understand. And if most of all of what I see and understand is me, myself, that will be borne out in my interactions with everything, 
and everyone. And if I don't see and I don't understand, that too will become evident. So really, there's no fudging it. I mean, we may uh, tell ourselves, no matter what we tell ourselves, really, there is no fudging it. And that you can't really cut corners in practice. Or you can, but it shows. Sooner or later, it shows. I always think of that when I walk out of the Sangha house and you see the path and the little corner that's closer to the main building. It's a patch of um, bare dirt. There's no grass growing on it. The other side is full, green, and vibrant. But in that one, there's a, there's a bare patch because we take the shortest route to this building. We cut a corner. That, that little bit of disregard for that patch of grass. And, you know, I mean, what is the big deal, right? It's just a little bit of grass. But for that little bit of grass, that little universe of grass, is quite a big deal. And is there anything, really, that is dispensable, that is unimportant? What we see is what we do. And virtue isn't doing or being good. Not when it's um, virtue paramita, when it's sila paramita. It is really seeing things are empty of self-nature. And because of this, it's natural to affirm life. It's natural to speak truthfully, to give generously. It's having full regard for another because they're not another. That that little bit of grass is my hand. It's my heart. And in in the quote that I started with, Annie Dillard is speaking of uh, an analytical kind of seeing where most of us live. That need to talk to ourselves in order to know that things are happening. Like a blind man sitting in the bleachers, listening to the game in the radio. And even though she speaks this way, I don't get a feeling that she's distant, that she's uh, standing outside, that she's an objective observer. Because of the way she writes, I feel she's, she is fully in it, and she knows, you know, she senses that there's more. And as you read on, you realize she knows. She has experienced there's more. That's why she wants to climb up the blank blue dome and storm the circus tent to see what's inside. That's the mystic whispering, don't stay here. Don't be satisfied with so little. Don't be sated with crumbs. So as she goes on, she does say, there's another way of seeing that involves the letting go. When I see this way, I sway transfixed and emptied. It's the difference between walking with and without a camera. When I walk without a camera, my own shutter opens, and the moment's light prints on my own silver gut. When I see the second way, I am above all an unscrupulous observer. Unscrupulous as in having or showing no moral principles, no virtue. But she's she's too much of a careful writer, you know, to... Uh, use any of her words casually. I read this 
in the context of her whole piece, I read this as no holds barred. She's not cautious or calculating. There's no filter between her and the experience. It's the beginning, the hints of the one who doesn't observe precepts, who doesn't do good or evil. But of course, this kind of thing doesn't happen automatically. And not even spontaneously, necessarily, even though we do all have glimpses, especially as children. For most of us, it's long, hard work. It's practice to see in this way. Cultivation. Much cultivation is needed before you can get to that place of no practice, no cultivation. But if we are learning to see the world or to see again the world for the first time, what is the rush? She speaks of um, a a book that she found that a man who was um, giving accounts of people who were blind from birth, but their their blindness was such that with a, a cataract operation, they were able to regain their sight. And what happens? How incredibly disorienting it is for most of them. I mean, some just refused, plain refused, to use their newfound sight. And one woman just shut her eyes whenever she wanted to get around in her house because sight got in her way of seeing. One young man becomes uh, preoccupied with how he looks, and all of a sudden he's ashamed of his old habits. And it doesn't say what the old habits were. You can just fill in the blanks. But it's interesting to note that shame appeared with sight, not before, almost as if his blindness shielded him from others' eyes, like a, like a toddler you know, hiding behind their own hands and thinking that they're uh, safe, you know, that they're, they're invisible. And isn't this exactly what we do? And we shield our, our eyes and tell ourselves nobody else can see us. <clears throat> One is so distressed that he threatens to, to claw out his eyes. He said, take me back to the sanatorium and I'll claw my eyes out if, if this isn't corrected. It can be overwhelming to be so exposed We should be thankful, then, that practice is so uh, gradual, that it takes so long, because we never see more than we can take in at any given moment in time. Some of them feel envy for the first time. Some begin stealing. Some commit fraud, lose their virtue as they regain their sight. But it wasn't, you know, not not all of it was harrowing. There was a woman who kept her eyes shut for uh, two weeks because it was just so dazzling. And then when she finally opened them, she couldn't really see objects. She just saw uh, patches of color and light. And yet she kept walking around saying, my God, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Seeing the world for the first time, in her case, literally. 
and it, it hit me as I was writing this that I'm, I'm often drawn to stories of blindness. And maybe because I sense that sight does get in the way of our seeing. <clears throat> and some of you know that I, I've, I've done this exercise when I do my running retreat where I ask people to run blindly. So it, there's, there's two people, and they uh, lock arms, and one of them is blindfolded. And so they, and they choose a patch of uh, road where it's safe for them to, to run, and I ask them to trust their partner and just run. And I, I developed this because years ago, in, there was in residence a blind, a young blind man who had been blind from, from birth, so he'd never been able to see. And he was a very good runner, uh, fast runner, actually. And this is how we would run. We would lock arms and we would run up and down Miller Road. <clears throat> and so I thought, what would it be like to, have, to let people have this experience? And what happens is quite remarkable. And at the beginning, people are scared. You know, they're tentative. But if we have time to do it long enough, it's, um, they run with abandon. They run like children, like they have never run before, or not in a long time. They're, and there's this sense of, of acceleration, because everything, all that they know is what they can feel and sense with their body. And of course, then there's that trust with, with their partner, of their partner. And the, the, they, they exude that uh, joyfulness. And, and what, a, what a gift it would be to be able to experience that more in, in different ways. You know, those, those safe, known, you know, familiar ways that we have of experiencing the world, we think keep us safe and how they so limit us. Dada Roshi would often quote Thoreau, I hear beyond the range of sound, I see beyond the range of sight. And Dillard takes you know, one more step, and she describes this seeing at the edge of, of sight, seeing by not seeing. She's, she's uh, sitting next to a pond that she spends quite a bit of time in, and she's sitting on a log, and she's just watching the sun glint off the, the sides of fish, the flank of fish. And she's just seeing these flashes of light. And she says they're happening so quickly that she can't quite keep track of it. And as this is happening, there's these petals, she thinks, floating just underneath her, underneath her dangling legs on the water. But she can't, again, she can't quite see them. And so what she does is she just closes her eyes almost, you know, she's squinting, and she lets them go out of focus, and is just focusing on the brim of her hat. And then she begins to see, she says, this, this universe that opens up under her, of these, these petals floating and the, uh, you know, the fine dust on the water. And she says, you know, so time slows, and something breaks and something opens. And she says, I filled up like a new wineskin, I breathed an air like light, 
I saw a light like water. I was the lip of a fountain, the creek filled forever. I was ether, the leaf in the sephir. I was flesh, flake, feather, bone. When I see this way, I see truly. As Thoreau says, I return to my senses. I am the man who watches the baseball game in silence in an empty stadium. I see the game purely. I'm abstracted and dazed. When it's all over and the white-suited players lope off the green field to their shadowed dugouts, I leap to my feet. I cheer and cheer. And she says how one morning she can know exactly where the muskrats are nesting and when the dogwood blooms. And in the afternoon, she's coming back, and she doesn't even know her name. And are they different, or are they the same? But, you know, so that we don't get lost you know, in a mystical flight, in very ground-level terms, you know, what does this seeing translate as? You see a dirty dish, you wash it. There's something that needs to be put away, you put it away. There's a person who's in front of you. You see them as the person in front of you, not as what you would like them to be. You see the world, not a movie of the world. And you see that withholding your time, your energy, your care, is like throwing yourself into a closet and then complaining that you feel cut out, cut off. Maybe we should do that, throw ourselves into a closet and really feel very concretely what we're creating with our mind. You know, what are we, what are we creating? What gets in the way? And somebody was saying to me recently, you know, it's not so, so obvious how washing the dishes will benefit you. It is not so obvious, and so we don't do it. It's obvious at a certain point that how zazen benefits you, and so even when it's challenging, we do it. Or, or maybe we just don't have a choice. You know, we came here and we signed up for the first period, and that's it for the 35 minutes. But something does happen, and so even when it doesn't feel good, we realize something is happening, and we trust it. There's no, we don't need to translate how this benefits me. And somehow, somehow we don't see that, you know, walking past the broken lamp or the unwashed dish or, you know, the, the person who is asking for your attention and you just walk by them, that as we do so, that our heart constricts just so. That in fact, we're walking around wounded. And maybe that's, why, maybe that's why our shell is so thick, because if we really felt the, the, um, the need for all these beings' care, you know, how they are asking for our care, maybe it would be too overwhelming. But as our seeing opens gradually and begins to open us up, we do realize that, that that giving of my time and my care and my effort it is, is not actually taking anything from me. I think that's what we're afraid of, you know, that this is, 
this is taking my time. This is, this is taking my energy. I only have so much to give. I only have so much to offer. <clears throat> and therefore we withhold. We don't see that it's actually the opposite. It's actually exactly the opposite mechanism. That the, the, to the extent that you can give is to the extent that you are replenished that you receive, that you are given to. I was in the city last week and I was reading on the paper about a woman who's a surgeon and she specializes in in breast cancer. And the piece was talking a little bit about her, her work, but then mentioned, mentioned kind of briefly, actually, that she sings to her patients as they're going under anesthesia. And she said, you know, and she takes requests. So you can ask your surgeon what song you would like her to sing to you as you're going under anesthesia. And she said, you know, most songs take about 50 minutes to learn. But if you request an aria, it might take me a week, but she will do it. And, you know, she's a famous, she's a well-regarded surgeon. She doesn't need to do this, but she does, because she doesn't want these women, her patients, to be afraid. And I've actually never been uh, under anesthesia, but I, I feel, if I put myself there in that moment, the fear that would come. In fact, I'm always surprised that we're not more afraid to go to bed at night to go to sleep, we just assume, we take for granted, we're confident that tomorrow I will wake up and I will still be me. And we base this on yesterday's evidence, which could change on a dime. But I guess that's what allows us, you know, to just go on. But the fear is, of course, it is, you know, concrete and you're going into surgery as you're going under an anesthesia. And so in that moment, this doctor helps assuage that fear with such a simple gesture that takes nothing from her and gives so much. And that wasn't even why she was in the, in the paper. You know, the article was talking about that she is uh, an advocate for, for a very conservative approach uh, to intervention. She would rather wait. And, and her argument, which is true, is that our technology is such that we're seeing things, we're seeing so many more things and so, so much earlier than often they're just false alarms, but we get afraid. You know, and women get afraid, and so they say, just go in there and cut. And she's saying, wait. Let's just wait and see how this develops. And it's controversial because it's risky. And there's people who think that she is a hero, and there's people who think... You know, she's taking a big chance. But they told of one example where she was working with a a colleague, a radiation oncologist, and they had a patient who had been, was tested and was free of cancer after surgery and chemo. And the surgeon was certain that the oncologist would recommend radiation as as a preventive and as a cautious measure because she had always done so in the past and so she brought it up and the uh, radiation oncologist immediately said no and the surgeon just looked at her and I said what happened to you 
And the oncologist just looked straight at her and said, you happened to me. And I, I wondered, after I read that article, there's going to be a mass exodus to California. You know, now everybody knows where she lives. Wouldn't it be great to have your uh, surgeon care that much about you? And the power, the power of someone who acts in this way, who exudes virtue. And, you know, the word virtue has a, has a tinge of sanctity. <clears throat> but I see it as just plain old goodness, decency, uh, loving kindness, humility, regard. She's not too important to sing to her patients, to cook for her colleagues, which she does. She's not too important to be fully human, to care deeply. I was uh, rereading the biography of St. Francis, whom I love, I've always loved. And uh, there was a cardinal when he was... Um, St. Francis was alive, who later became Pope, who was, who was very supportive of St. Francis. And he later became Pope, Gregory the Ninth. <clears throat> but he still very much admired St. Francis' uh, way of life. And so he took in a leper into what, it wasn't the Vatican at the time, it was just a papal palace. He took in a leper, and every once in a while he would take care of him. And the leper complained to somebody. He said, you know, I never see his holiness, but every once in a while there's an incompetent old man that takes care of me (laughs) now and then. Let us be wild and incompetent in in our care, but not disinterested. Foolishly virtuous, virtuous, but not distant, not unconcerned, uninvolved. The secret of seeing is then the pearl of great price. If I thought they could teach me to find it and keep it forever, I would stagger barefoot across a hundred deserts after any lunatic at all. But although the pearl may be found, it may not be sought. The literature of illumination reveals this above all. Although it comes to those who wait for it, it is always, even to the most practiced and adept, a gift and a total surprise. I cannot cause light. The most I can do is try to put myself in the path of its beam. I've always loved the images of of light. Um, Not just loved, I, I, again, feel very drawn to them, very uh, compelled. And perhaps that's why, you know, that, that blindness and the seeing, and that there are times when you have to go blind in order to see. You have to go deaf in order to hear. And we hear this all the time, and, and we hear it it's, uh, especially in the Zen tradition, and we hear it in the koans. But what does that actually mean? You know, what is that experience of not seeing and not hearing in order to see and hear completely? And maybe, maybe what she's saying that is the most important thing, that this, this kind of seeing can be found, but it cannot be sought. That it is both a gift and a surprise. 
that we practice long and hard. We practice long hours in order to put ourselves in the path of its beam and that we cannot seek it. That the moment you turn toward it, you can no longer see. And she says, you know, she does say, although it comes to those who wait for it, but you can't wait for it. You can't just wait for it. That's not enough. Otherwise, it would be, you know, like, like um, artists speak of inspiration. You just sit here and wait for it to somehow strike. And anybody who has accomplished themselves in a, in a discipline knows that that is not true. You work. There's the, there's the rigorous, rigorous discipline of returning time and time and time again in order to put yourself in its path. But it's actually even closer than that. You know, there's that moment when you realize you're not even in its path, out of its path. You are that beam of light. And that it is, in fact, shining everywhere. And because of that, because it is light, and it's you, you have enormous power. And so when you see that, what do you actually do? In that moment of seeing that light, there's always a next moment, right? We, just, we don't just stay in the light. There's always a next moment of the dirty dishes and the broken lamps and the pieces of bare dirt. There's no longer grass. And that to me, is, is the question. In that, entering into a world that is not always light, what will you do? What will each one of us do? For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.